Let's have the discussion. You're listening to Canter with Scott and Paul. Welcome to Canter. Today we've got Yauke Piepenbrink from Dutch Passion here to discuss the history of Dutch Passion. How are you doing, Yauke? Hey, hello, good day. Nice to, uh, to be here again. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty good. You know, we're uh, trying to cope with uh, with with um, the coronavirus here in Holland, um, which is uh, uh, not not always easy. But uh, business continues, private life is good, so uh, no complaints from my side. Very good, very good. And uh, you guys have uh, you're still going with your your up increase in sales? Yeah, yeah. We see we see a shift mainly from B two B sales to online sales. Uh, it's really not like B2B sales dried up. Uh, some some companies are doing uh, very well still. Others are declining. Uh, but generally, we can see some shift to, to online. Uh, and we also see that our customers who do online sales, so B2B customers, they also increase in, uh, in sales. So we're having a, a really good season. It looks like uh, people use the time they have at home to, uh, to start gardening, which is a great thing, of course. I hope a lot of people will... Uh, plant their first seed this year. Yeah, I think it's great to see that uh, more people have, that have probably uh, had a bit of any, a desire to get involved are, are finally starting to, to pull the pin and, and get into it. And uh, hopefully no one gets in too much trouble and everybody can learn a bit along the way. Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that, that's exactly how it is. But, um, you know, I think it's always good to see people growing their own, you know, of course, there's in a lot of countries, there's there's certain risk involved, but still, it's better if a, if a lot of people break the law a little bit by growing a few plants, than when a few people break the law big time by breaking big numbers of uh, growing big numbers of plants. So, yeah, I agree with that. Hey, mate, I've always uh, been fascinated with uh, the early days of the cannabis industry in the Netherlands, and uh, I think there's no one better to talk to than Dutch Passion and yourself uh, about how it all began and, um, you know, the early days with Hank. And uh, can you just give us a run through, give us a give us a rundown of how it all began? Yeah, 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 I'd love to do that. Um, it's something I, I also really like to explain about because it's uh, it's it's really an interesting history and uh, a unique situation uh, Dutch Passion and Hank was in in that time uh, so it's yeah, I really like to, uh, to to explain you more about that um, to, to to start I think to like to paint a picture uh, there was in Holland uh, some kind of uh, hippie movement already before the actual hippies uh, came around. So in the 50s, 60s, we had a movement here in Holland uh, in the early 60s and the 50s, a movement which was called the Provo movement. And uh, uh, it was, Holland is by definition uh, actually a, a conservative Christian country, a majority. But also we are a nation of uh, uh, trading people. And, uh, you know, that brings with itself uh, the, the necessity to have an open mind. Because if you have to trade with the whole world, being a small country, and you have to trade with Asia, uh, uh, Arabian countries, with like, you know, the whole world, you need to have an open mind for religion, for beliefs, for um, everything. Yeah. And you, you find that back in the Dutch culture, although that, as I just said, uh, we have a conservative Christian uh, majority. 
Um, so in the in the fifties and early sixties, there was the Provo movement. Uh, they introduced some things which they they started a um, political party also, but they were also kind of uh, activistic uh, movement, and they introduced concepts which were far far before their time, such as something known in Amsterdam as the White Bicycle Plan, which was in that time actually a bike sharing concept, which now in recent few years became popular in many large cities. Uh, but in Amsterdam, we already had that uh, in that time, which, by the way, failed completely because people stole the bikes. <laughs> uh, but I know, the, sure. the, the system was not, not fine-tuned, so, so uh, I can say it was a big success, but it was most of all far, far uh, before its time. Uh, well, so one of the things that those provos did, that was more the activistic part of the provo movement, one of the things they did was uh, because they, they realized cannabis was forbidden and they also realized they liked to smoke it, mainly hashis in that time, concentrates, uh, imported from Morocco. So that movement liked to, to smoke it and noticed it was crazy that it wasn't uh, wasn't being, wasn't legal uh, and wasn't, decrimin- uh, wasn't criminalized so long yet in that time. It was a matter of maybe 20 years uh, of, of prohibition only, not that long. Anyway, so those people smoked hashis, and uh, uh, what they did, they, they kind of liked to fuck up the police. So what they would do, for example, was organize a party, make sure there was no one with any possession of cannabis, call the police and give some kind of tip to the police, like, yeah, there are people smoking weed over there. And then the police would arrive, people would be smoking big tobacco joints, all of them, you know, <laughs> and they they were doing that not just once, but they were doing that kind of crazy actions a lot. So they were kind of fucking up the police, uh, 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 showing them how ridiculous it was actually to to use these resources. And in the 60s, the Dutch government uh, decided to actually study the uh, effects of cannabis and also the danger because they saw that Provo movement, which wasn't huge compared to like mainstream, but you know it was there. They saw the Provo movement was was making all these jokes with weed. They were smoking it for us also. There were festivals where where cannabis was being smoked openly, and they started to wonder like, how do we have to handle this? You know, is strict prohibition the best uh, way to approach it? And they did some actual scientific research, found out that cannabis isn't as addictive or dangerous as things like heroin, uh, and that's where it actually started in the 70s. The government in Holland started to separate policy for hard drugs and soft drugs. So many countries have like a list of illegal drugs. Many countries also have like several classes of illegal I- illegality, right? Mm-hmm. So like in the US, I think there are three lists. Mm-hmm. Some drugs are legal for medicine. Some are more strict, but also legal for medicine. And others are totally illegal. Well, in Holland, they also split up that list. But actually, the list is very short because there's like list one and list two. On the one list, there's just cannabis, and on the other list is all the other uh, like illegal uh, narcotics you can imagine. So coke, heroin, uh, crack, well, all, all that stuff, ecstasy as well. Uh, and what I did in that time was uh, kind of give more space for cannabis to be consumed because they realized it wasn't as harmful as other drugs. Um, in the same time, Kind of naturally, during that those years of debate in in Holland, 
when also the general public kind of learned that cannabis wasn't the worst thing, thing especially in Amsterdam, a lot of uh, people started to deal. And it started just like any dealer, you know, a guy who buys hash mainly, uh, cuts it in small pieces and sells it to its friends. But that involved, evolved in, in something a little bit more organized where bars or mainly coffee bars would actually have their own house dealer. So there was a guy inside the coffee bar who was allowed by the owner of the bar to, to sell his dope indoors. And sometimes the guy in the corner was making more money than the owner of the bar. So he ended up being kind of the owner of the place. And that's a little bit how the coffee shops got place. And the police didn't really actively prosecute that. In some cases they did, but not in all the cases. And, you know, after some years of that, we had actually, in reality, we had coffee shops. Most of them were, were not being prosecuted. Uh, but there was also no legal framework uh, allowing them. And politicians had to decide on that because that couldn't continue like that. And the result of their uh, of, of several years of debate was that they created some kind of legal framework for what we know now as coffee shops, retail locations and consumption places for cannabis products, uh, which is actually almost unchanged still in place today. So basically, um, it's, it's a strange system. I don't say it's the best of the world, but uh, it, it has worked for 40 years already now. Uh, so in a coffee shop, it's allowed to sell under a certain set of strict rules. So a coffee shop can't have more stock than 500 grams. Uh, that's, that's their maximum allowed stock to have inside the shop. That's not a lot. A big shop in the central of Amsterdam maybe sells that in, in half a day or less. Anyways, uh, 500 grams of, uh, of stock allowed. They are not allowed to buy the product or produce the product. They only have permission to sell the product. And to go more in technical details for who likes to know that, actually, they don't even have a permission. What they have is a paper which grants them that they will not be prosecuted to do certain things which are actually illegal if they follow a certain set of rules around it. So they're not officially permitted. They just have like a promise that they will not be prosecuted if they follow some rules. Uh -huh. So it's, it's, it's a very, yeah, very gray. I don't know. So it's not even a license. It's, very, it's not even officially a license. No, the, the word license, uh, which is vergunning in Dutch would already be one step further. This is like, just a promise from, from the government not to be prosecuted if they follow yeah. some rules, which is maximum stock, no sales to minors, uh, a, f a few of those uh, like conditions. Um, anyway, so that, that was 40 years ago and, and the coffee shops that are uh, operating right now are still using the same legal framework that, uh, that we have. Um, so. What, how, how did Dutch Passion start? Because that's what I was actually uh, going to, to explain you, but I think it was important to uh, uh, paint this, this uh, context a little bit. For Absolutely. You. So Henk was a biology student, father of policemen. Uh, by that, uh, be quite 
uh, anti-authoritarian, uh, is that yeah, the word? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. So uh, he he didn't really like uh, his strict father, to say it like that. They they had a good relation. It was not a bad relation, but he was uh, uh, in his early 20s, and he liked to consume cannabis. He got caught for consuming cannabis one, one day, uh, and he sensed such a... Uh, feeling of injustice that he thought like, okay, I, this this is wrong. You know, I'm smoking a piece of a plant, and people are putting uh, putting me in jail for it. I think he was not even a day at the police uh, station, but enough for him to to make him uh, uh, pissed about the whole situation. So his solution uh, was to educate people. He became an activist. So he decided to explain people about cannabis and also to start experimenting with growing it by himself which led to that he wrote some like pamphlets leaflets with instructions how to grow your own weed in that time uh, you have to mention there was hashish 80 or 90 percent of uh, what was being sold in the in the coffee shops was hashish uh, from the uh, imported from uh, from morocco and the middle east and then there was like a 10 percent uh, of flour which was pressed flour imported from places like India, Thailand, uh, even Colombia. Uh, but all of that was being smuggled illegally to Holland, sold illegally to the coffee shops, and uh, sold openly with this strange kind of permission, which isn't a permission in the coffee shops. So Henk uh, started experimenting with seeds, which he found in the flowers from that pressed imported cannabis. Uh, and also in those same years, he traveled around the world. He went to see some of the countries where cannabis was being grown and he collected seeds over there and brought them back home. So he had this source of seeds, which was part for part from the, from the imported pressed wheat and for part from travels. And also sometimes his friends would, uh, would bring him some seeds uh, from their travels. So he started to experiment. He was, uh, he, he thought he was a biology student. He thought that it should be possible to find cultivars which can uh, do well in Holland. Most people in that time didn't really know the cannabis plant. They've, they had never seen it. And they thought it, it because, you know, it's a special plant. And they, a lot of people believed it, it must be so exotic that it would never grow in Holland because here we have a moderate, cold and rainy uh, climate with short, relatively short summers. But Hank was convinced that uh, it, it should be possible. He started experimenting and uh, uh, he managed. So he planted lots of seeds. Most of the seeds indeed didn't do well in, uh, in the Dutch climate, but some did. And he used those seeds, he crossed them, selected, crossed more. And like this, step by step, he built up uh, a collection with about 20, 25 different strains, which he always uh, kept in stock. Sorry, yeah, okay. This was you... actually only for... Sorry, mate. Can you just uh, tell us what were the characteristics he was looking out for in those in those times? Obviously, short flowering was was pretty important. Yeah, he was actually looking for anything which would survive well in our climate. That was yeah. his only concern in okay. the beginning. You know, uh, the the effect and taste was secondary. Yep, sure. First, he needed to find which survived here, flowered in time. So. And we're speaking of uh, end of flowering in early, early autumn. So in, in Holland, that is uh, September or October. Well, many strains, like more the sativa kind of kind, uh, kind of strains, would would finish in our climate in, well, let's say for Christmas or around that time. And that's too late to have uh, to, to have still good uh, harvest circumstances. So 
anyway, so he, he, he produced all those trains, uh, but that was only for his own use, because what, what did he do? He figured out that activism wasn't really leading anywhere. You know, didn't go fast enough. He tried, he tried to contact politicians and everything, but that didn't go fast enough. So while he experimented with the genetics, he started to grow also. And he started to grow wheat outdoors in Holland. And he was actually one of the first guys who achieved to grow a high quality, well, relatively high quality compared to the imported brick wheat, uh, wheat in, in Holland outdoors. And he started to sell that in his own coffee shops because in, in the meantime, he had opened his own uh, shop also. So he supplied some other shops in Amsterdam and he supplied his own shop. His own shop was the first shop in uh, in Amsterdam with only domestically grown product, which was unique in that time. A few years before he opened his own shop, many people still thought it was totally impossible to grow wheat at all in Holland. Uh, so, you know, that, that gave him a big advantage. He was able to grow it here in Holland. And his big motivation for this was that uh, by growing it himself, he didn't have to uh, uh, pay money to like big criminal organizations importing the products from all over the world. You know, he didn't like to, to trade with, with those guys who were shipping containers and containers of illegal stuff. That was the kind of league he did not want to be a part of. Uh, and this was his solution. You know, he could grow his own wheat. He used his friends who were living around uh, Holland on countryside areas in Amsterdam. Some of them also, by the way, in Amsterdam. Uh, but they grew all outdoors uh, uh, the product for his coffee shop and, and so so much quantity that they could also supply uh, other shops. And from that kind of naturally, uh, he got demand for the genetics as well. Uh, in that time, Amsterdam was full of uh, people from outside of Poland, from the neighboring countries like uh, uh, um, uh, Germany, Belgium, France, UK, but also people from overseas, from uh, from uh, United States mainly, uh, quite a lot. And, uh, you know, Amsterdam was really the, the place to be for any any smoker in that time. Still is, by the way, but, uh, well, yeah, the situation is not Anyway, so... Um, you know, he was, uh, he got those people, they smoked the wheat, they liked it, and they asked for the seeds because they wanted to do the same at home, grow and, uh, and supply themselves. And he loved that idea, so he started to sell his seeds. He had plenty anyway, and for him, you know, in the beginning, he, he was just giving away the seeds. He didn't really realize they had the value, but when he got more and more and more demand of people who were buying the flowers and then also wanted the seeds when they figured out there were seeds, he realized that there was more than just some kind of friendly giving away thing in it, but he could make money from it. So that's when he started to uh, to sell them. Um, and uh, yeah, as business uh, grew in the uh, around the late 80s, I think it was 89 or 1990, he started to focus completely on the seed company and leave the whole uh, coffee shop thing uh, uh, over to, to someone else. Uh, because uh, he he started to create more cultivars, uh, print brochures, export the seeds to to like B2B customers, you know, distributors, uh, shops in in Germany, in in France, in Spain, in several countries. Sometimes it was legal in those countries, sometimes not. But you know, it didn't really matter for him. He supplied uh, those seeds to anyone uh, who wanted them, and he worked on on new strains. Um, then. Uh, that, that business was steady, but it was uh, a typical niche business. So, you know, it was never like 
a huge thing what would make him uh, a millionaire to say it like that but it was giving him uh, enough income to to live and to have some employees and you know, he was he was living a good life from that the business started to become a little bit more international there came some trade shows uh, you know the people didn't just visit amsterdam anymore but the people from amsterdam also went to to, the, to see their customers and uh, to see the shops in in the other countries and then in the 90s, together with uh, some of his fixed breeders, by the way, that's also nice to say, like the, the, the team of breeders who started with Dutch Passion are actually the same guys who started growing wheat in the first place for Hank. So they supplied him with wheat for his coffee shop, and then together with Hank, they made a shift from wheat to seed when, they, when Hank also made that shift. Anyway, so... In the 90s, they read in, uh, in, uh, in the Ed Rosenthal uh, book about the theoretical possibility of 100% female plants. So that, that it was not his own idea to make feminized seeds, but he did read some theory about it, but no one brought it to practice yet. And many people believed it was a, a theory which uh, wasn't actually possible to bring into practice. Um, anyway, Hank and his team... They experimented a lot with that. Uh, and they also contacted some universities around the world to, to help them. Usually they said, uh, they, they told the universities they were, were, were working on a cucumber project or something else. Uh, but now they, they figured out after, uh, I think it took them like five or six years to produce uh, feminized seeds. In, in nature, uh, to, to explain that shortly to you, in nature, a plant, so cannabis, to start cannabis is male and female. The male plant uh, produces pollen and, and pollinizes the female plant. Um, actually, it's the female plant with flower, with the buds, as you know them uh, from your baggie when you smoke them. Those are the female flowers, and that's what you want. If you want to produce seeds, then you need the male plant as well to, to pollinate the, 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 the female plant. If you want a nice clean bud to smoke, you don't want that there are seeds in that bud. So you have to make sure that the plant is not being pollinated by a male. So in the time of the regular and the normal traditional seeds, um, people had to kill the male plants if they were growing wheat in order to make sure that those flowers wouldn't be pollinated. Um, but uh, in nature, when you have female plants, no male plants around, so no pollinization, in nature, if you leave that plant flowering to, let's say, three, four weeks past the normal harvest date, as a kind of self-defense mechanism, this plant will self-pollinate. So you will have a real female uh, pollinating itself. So this female only has uh, uh, female DNA. It will create pollen, which is actually a male treat. But the pollen, because it's from the female plant, will only have female DNA. So you will have female DNA pollinating, pollinating a female flower from a female plant, which leads to also female seeds because there's simply no male genetics in that plant left. This is a mechanism that in, in, in the wild, to say it like that, is a self-defense mechanism that was already known. The thing is that if you would grow feminized seeds like this, you could grow nice, good, high-quality seeds, but never quantities big enough to sell because... The self-defense me mechanism is very limited. The, the amount of pollen that the female plant will produce by herself is too little to pollinate the full plant. It will pollinate a few pieces of a few flowers, and that's it. So um, 
to so this is this is what is actually a feminized seed. What Hank discovered together with his team is that it is possible to stimulate those female plants to self-pollinate uh, way before the natural moment and also uh, with much more uh, quantity of female flowers carrying pollen which uh, pollinate the normal flowers. So he achieved to let to to uh, stimulate plants to self-pollinate themselves in, in bigger numbers. And this was like the holy grail. When he achieved this, he managed to produce 100% female uh, seeds. Actually, later he figured out that there is also a little disadvantage that's that these plants are a little bit more, have a bit more tendency to, to become uh, hermaphrodite, which also is something you don't want in your grow room. So it took him several years, you know, to, to find the right genetics to do it with the right timing, how, when to apply this, the, the stimulation. Uh, the stimulation, by the way, is, is being done in, in several methods, and they also experimented with all those uh, uh, methods, but it always comes down to spraying some kind of product on the plant, which uh, gives stress to the plant, and a certain kind of stress which leads to the plant thinking it might die, and that's why it will start to self-pollinate. So you, you treat those plants actually with the stress treatment. So they, they took several years. So <laughs> maybe I'm very, very techn technical and long. I, I hope uh, your listeners will not fall asleep. No, I think right. it's, no, it's, it's good. Like it's interesting. I think. Um, am I correct in uh, saying colloidal silver is one of these, one of these spray treatments? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Colloidal silver is one of the of the of the products being used and, and still being applied, mm -hmm. and there are several. And uh, uh, usually each breeder has its own uh, preference because mm -hmm. they're used to a certain method. But there are several several methods which all uh, actually work fine. Sure. And that's they use those years to find the actual the, the best products to to do that. Anyway, so when they manage to produce stable varieties, uh, treat them and uh, push them to, to uh, produce good amounts of uh, feminized seeds. In the late 90s, in 1998, they started to go on the market with this. And that was like the, the big change in the history of Dutch passion, but not even just the, the history of Dutch passion, but the whole cannabis seed industry. Mm. At that moment, there were uh, maybe 20 different seed companies around. In Amsterdam, of which some are still like known names, you know, Sensi Seeds, Greenhouse, uh, Barney's Farm. Well, Barney's was just coffee shops in that time anyway. There, there were already uh, some people selling seeds, just like Dutch Passion. But it was, like I said, you know, it was enough to, to make a living, to have some employees, but uh, not like a, a very huge business. But once those feminine seeds came on the market, then everything changed because made it much easier for people to grow their own wheat. They didn't have to get rid of the mills anymore. And that's actually 50% of your plants. Uh, so it, it's a big advantage over, over the, the regular seeds. Uh, and also a little bit in the same time, the cannabis movement started to become stronger in South Europe, Italy and, uh, and Spain also, which is still uh, very important. Also in the UK, people started to get uh, to grow so, some balls and uh, to grow at home. Um, so, you know, there was this international vibe also in the late 90s, like, okay, you know, uh, we had prohibition for a long time, let's grow some wheat. So 
the market became e even more uh, international. Also, we got internet in that time, which also helped really a lot. Uh, so, you know, some different factors came together and then the feminized seeds came just on the right moment. And that's when, when sales really started uh, booming for Dutch Passion. The company had uh, about two years uh, a monopoly on, uh, on feminized seeds. And actually, the first year of those two years wasn't really super successful because most people didn't believe feminized seeds. They thought they wouldn't work or it would be just a scam or uh, it would be shitty plants. So there were, you know, a lot of growers, of course, it's, it's, it didn't change a lot. If a grower has a certain method of growing, they don't like to change. Uh, because, you know, there's a risk involved in change always. You always have to figure out if your change is going to work. Uh, so it, it took a full year to convince the market of the fact that these feminized seeds were actually giving high-quality female plants. But uh, in, in one year, more or less, of time, uh, the market did get convinced. And then there was a, a whole full year of booming sales, uh, which led to, to extreme growth in the company. Uh, one example from that period that uh, Hank, the, the founder, uh, he uh, he told me once is that uh, he gave a pile of business cards to uh, to a friend of Germany, because in that time, you know, there was internet, but it wasn't like the most common thing. So he, he gave a pile of business cards uh, to his friend in, from Germany. The guy traveled back to Germany. And about uh, two weeks later, his fax started working. At that time, we still had faxes. The younger people uh, who listen <laughs> might have to Google what the fax is. Anyway, so fax is like, uh, you know, the orders in that time were coming in mainly through fax. So we were getting those rolls. And Hank told me, so two weeks after he gave those business cards, he started to suddenly get faxes from all over Germany with orders. Uh, you know, so it, it went by itself. There was no marketing involved. There was no salespeople in the company. There was, wow. you know, it just happened. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the, the, that's a little bit uh, the, the, the monopoly time. But after that, Hank also saw that he could never supply this whole market himself and that uh, other people also had to work on these genetics. So he shared the process of making feminized seeds with some people, some people in Amsterdam, but also he picked some of his customers in Spain who were also experimenting themselves by producing seeds. And actually, you know, he spread the the method uh, around Europe and that, that led to the situation where we are now, where uh, regular non-feminized seeds for us, for Dutch Passion, is less than uh, 3% of our sales. And for uh, uh, some companies don't even have regular seeds, most of them. Uh, so, you know, that that really changed the landscape and made, made it possible for the whole market uh, to, to grow a lot. Very cool. Very cool. So what during that period, what were the most iconic strains that the Dutch Passion came out with? Well, some of the traditional ones from that time, you have to think like in Holland, you know, we, we don't really have a lot of real Dutch strains. Actually, we don't have real Dutch strains. Uh, but Hank started mainly with Indica strains uh, from uh, India, Pakistan, that were the ones that were doing best in Holland. And uh, things like purple number one, uh, but also crosses like, uh, uh, in that time it was called Amstel Gold. It's not around anymore, but our train Frisian do carries Amstel Gold. Uh, passion number one. Uh, all the, that are the kind of strains he, uh, he started with. And they're all kind of based on like the 
in the Indian Pakistan mountain genetics, which can cope with cold weather, with humidity, and, uh, and all of that. And after that, in the time already of the feminized seeds, you know, it was a bit more advanced in the meantime. Uh, the Californian cannabis refugees who, who, who didn't really like the, the, the policy over there came to Holland and brought their seeds here. Uh, an example is uh, Sam the Skunkman, uh, if yeah. um, you might have heard of him. Uh, he, was, he was the guy who brought skunk to Europe and by that giving us the possibility to reproduce those seeds and make it into what it is now. Uh, many people might not know, but a lot of the uh, today's famous strains carry skunk. Okay. All the, the, a lot of the, the super popular American sweet strains that are, are around now yeah. in some kind of way are based on, on skunk varieties also, which is funny. So it, Sam the Skunk Man brought a lot of skunk to Holland. Uh, there was another guy called Neville. Um, he worked with, with a lot of the, the early seed companies as well, and Neville. he brought also to Hank. Is that Neville Schoenmakers? Seeds. Yes, that's yeah, so he's yeah. from our hometown, actually, here in here in Perth, or Fremantle, yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah. He didn't really live a big part of his life over there, I think, but uh, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he was he was the guy who brought from California, because he, he, was, he was located in California, and uh, and then came to Holland. Uh, he brought Hayes to Holland, and Hayes is skunk, and you know, there were different skunks and different Hayes strains, there were also things like Kush and some, some other stuff, but mainly those two. Uh, made made a big change in Holland in the 90s. You know, the, the, the genetics were brought before already, but they, they got mainstream here in the 90s. And they replaced, like, let's say, the traditional, more fluffy, low THC, uh, not that high-quality wheat. They replaced that for, like, potent, strong, resinous uh, varieties, which really get you, get you knocked up. Um, so yeah, no, that was uh, those two guys, and with them, around them, a big group of other people. It was not just them. Eh? They are the two most iconic guys. They brought those seeds over here, and they spread them around the seed companies. So Hank got some of the seeds from them because the, the, this cannabis world was really small right then. Eh? All those guys who are now the owners of like the bigger companies, they, they they started together. They came together in the same bars, and you know they. It's fascinating that you got they all came together and helped each other. Um, create new strains and build the market. It's really yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah we have we we have pictures in our uh, in our uh, archive where you see all those guys uh, together. You know, with, and not on a busy place because they were just some guys yeah. in the bar discussing weed, <laughs> enjoying. <laughs> Yeah, so it was it was a limited group. I, I wouldn't say they are, they are friends, you know. The, 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 most of those guys uh, were not like coming to each other's uh, birthdays, but they did meet often to discuss business, to to exchange genetics. They were all passionate cannabis people and, uh, and, and you know, working for the same goal, actually. So anyway, Sam and, uh, and Ethel and, and some more people, they brought uh, those good Californian strains and spread those seeds uh, around in Amsterdam. They gave them to, to Dutch Passion, to Sensi Seeds, to Super Satisa Seed Club, to a few more uh, uh, of the seed companies. And all those guys started working on those genetics, crossing them also with what they already had, and, you know, creating the, the, the Euro European uh, uh, type of strains. One of the uh, really, or I would say, one of the best achievements of that is, is like Amnesia. Mm -hmm. which was not made by Dutch Passion, but made a big change also. It was Neville's hay seeds selected, and, you know, there was this one special 
uh, individual plant which was which had a real typical amnesia smell, and they managed to reproduce that in the south of Holland. And that came back, of course, you know, uh, also to Amsterdam. So genetics are free, and uh, it's kind of an open source model before the world the word open source model existed. Uh, but you know, people, genetics are free, and people uh, exchange them, and, uh, and 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 together you can work to to improve those genetics. If you would do it all within one company, it wouldn't be possible. Sure. So so from there, you you're moving through the nineties now, right? Is that is that where we're at? End of the nineties timeline. Yeah. So so from there, we go into the two thousands. When when did yeah. this whole ruderalis and auto flower thing kick off? It's it's a nice one, yeah. So um, yeah, late nineties introduction of female seeds, feminized seeds. Uh, early two thousands, uh, uh, this the cannabis business started to professionalize. So instead of being some guys making just a living, serious profits were being made. Uh, but also the whole grow shop business started, you know. So there were there were people starting companies for uh, nutrients for cannabis, substrates for cannabis, lighting for cannabis, and that was not just in Holland. That was a European thing, you know. By that time already, this market became a real European market with a lot of exchange uh, between between several countries in Europe. Leading countries, I would say, are Holland and Spain still, uh, but the markets in France and uh, and Germany, for example, are also uh, quite big. Anyway, so um, by professionalizing, much more people started to work on genetics. And there was one crazy guy that nobody actually in Europe ever heard of in Canada, with the name of the joint doctor. If you don't know about him, Google him. Uh, I, I know him personally, it's a really, really nice guy also. So if he listens, uh, shout out to you, man. Uh, but uh, yeah, so the joint doctor, he created uh, an, yeah, the first out-of-flowering uh, strain. He called it Lowrider. The, his, his, his story is that he uh, had a plant called uh, Williams Wonder, which was, which was actually an original uh, Super Sativa Seed Club strain. Uh, and he crossed it with another plant called Mexican Rudy. And Mexican Rudy... You know, it has Rudy in it, so it sounds like Ruderalis. In the same time, uh, he got it from a friend from Mexico. And Mexico isn't really the place where you would expect Ruderalis to yeah. appear. It doesn't appear there. I right? have the long flowering sativas. Anyways, uh, he crossed those two plants, the Williams Wonder, which was already kind of known to be some kind of semi-out of flower, at least short flowering plant, mm -hmm. with the Mexican Rudy. And got the lowrider as a result. Well, the lowrider uh, is a f in that time was a, was a really funny plant. It was super small, so it would become like 10, 15 centimeters high. It would typically produce one flower of medium quality, uh, but that's it. But it would finish in like 10 weeks' time, you know. So it was a good plant to place in your windowsill, and 10 weeks later you could smoke a few joints. Um, but it wasn't really a, a commercial, commercially interesting strain for anyone wanting to grow wheat. Um, so uh, he did like stabilize something super special, but it was useless to, to, to serious growers, you know, only funny for people 
who like to put like uh, a small plant which produces three grams of wheat in in their windows. Yeah. So no commercial capacity but, to it whatsoever. At all, but it did open a lot of eyes, and people were, were a little bit like the time of the feminized seeds. People were first not believing that it yeah. was even possible uh, because you know, out of flower, ruderalis, just nobody knew about it yet. So people knew some fixed things about cannabis, but not that this was also possible in cannabis. Uh, but then some smart guys in Spain who already mastered production of seeds, already mastered feminizing seeds. Uh, and not one company, but different companies in uh, different guys in different areas of Spain. They started to experiment with these lowrider seeds, crossing it with other strains, crossing it again and recrossing. And they figured out that if you take this small, tiny lowrider, but you cross it with traditional genetics, over various generations, you can suddenly get a stable out of flowering strain, which does produce a big amount of wheat in a higher quality. That that took some years, but actually they were surprisingly fast and they were so nice to share their methods with us also. Uh, we, we are really happy with, uh, you know, that we, we shared the feminized technique with them, but those, some of those people shared the auto-flowering techniques back with us, which was great. And that gave us the possibility to create actually any strain we'd like into an auto-flowering version. And it was around 2000, let's say 2012, when the quality of the uh, outflowering strains uh, was high enough to compete with normal indoor ground strains. Still, the flowers were not in the same level, but it was, you know, getting close to, to that quality. And then with the benefit of being faster and just more easy to grow, uh, it, it made outflowers into a serious thing in our market. And we, around that, those years, we introduced the Automazar, which for us was by far uh, the, the best performing out of flower and still is a, a best was seller. A, you know, it's, it's over the years we improved it. But, yeah. It was a game changer to me. I, I just see Automazar and then Think Different as, as game changers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think Different came a couple of years later and, uh, and even like was a next step already, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. We managed to produce those seeds and we knew that they were good because we were also trying them indoors, uh, you know, and, and giving them to friends. So we already knew that those seeds were good, but the big public didn't know it. And it's hard to, to, to pass that message. And, you know, in that time, uh, we also had to be, uh, we couldn't be too transparent. It's not legal to grow in Holland, you know, so you mm -hmm. can't just make, open a big station site and show the world. Um, so we, we were always a bit limited in what we could do, but with Automazar, uh, I have to give full credit to an online grower. His name is Seymour Butts, mm -hmm. and later he, he also <laughs> did, uh, think different. And this guy, he mastered the art of germinating one seed and, and growing a, a, a huge, big plant from that one single seed without flowers. And he, he managed to show like the, the maximum capacity of these seeds in deep water culture, this guy is he's like a plant whisperer, you know, he, he really, <laughs> he knows the details in, in, in yeah, he's, he really, it's, it's incredible what he, he manages to do with his genetics. But what he did in that way, he showed the world that the outer flower is really not less productive than a traditional feminized uh, or, or a regular strain. And also in the same time, you know, the, the market uh, grew, beginners came along, you know, a lot of new first time growers. The good thing about first-time growers is that they don't have already practices they use. 
they don't have like any experience or baggage so they, they are open to try like uh, innovations so a lot of the young new growers they started from scratch without the flowers and they they kind of you know the the, the first time growers from uh let's say 2012 are the experienced guys guys right now so that's why now uh i would say that more than 50 percent of our sales is out of flowers probably like close to 60 percent wow. of the sales it's incredible. And then, so then the next phase I see for Dutch Passion is, is probably the CBD varieties that you, you've come out with. Uh, and I think you were fairly yeah, early yeah. in the game with that too, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah together with uh, the CBD crew, uh, which was a project by uh, uh, Scott Blakey, Shanti Baba, but also uh, Mr. Nice was involved and uh, Jorge Cervantes and uh, the guys from Resin Seeds in Barcelona. So those guys, they started uh, in Barcelona to, to create uh, CBD strains uh, around 2013-2014, which was, I, 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 I loved it. It was a new approach, you know, because until then, people, seed growers, uh, cannabis growers, always had just been looking for the highest possible THC. And, you know, it's, it's a sure thing still today. Most of the demand for cannabis is for high THC cannabis. Yeah. These guys were smart and they realized, yeah, but there's more to cannabis than just THC. Let's explore CBD, which in that time was actually the only known uh, common cannabinoid next to uh, THC. And there, there was a lab also around the corner in Barcelona who wanted to work with them. So they, they were able to, to work with the lab, send them like uh, samples of the plants take out all the individuals with high, high THC, which is for many breeders uh, completely out of their uh, uh, comfort zone. But they took away all the high THC plants and they, they looked for the high CBD. And uh, when they told us, we from the beginning, we were excited and, uh, and, and we, we decided to collaborate with them to, to help them in order to create that more. And uh, we, we have a lot of connections anyway in Barcelona. It's, we, we call it like our second home. Also the second uh, Amsterdam, uh, according to many people. Anyway, so in uh, in Barcelona we, we we set up this collaboration and uh, we helped them to 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 breed those high CBD strains. And the first introduction, if I'm not mistaken, was in 2014, uh, CBD skunk haze, which was uh, the first high, relatively high CBD strain on the market. But in the, in those times, that that was. Uh, uh, let's say 6% CBD and 6% mm -hmm. THC strain. Uh, that's that's what we achieved with, with the CBD crew at that moment. And we brought it to the market and it was the first train with high uh, CBD. And sales were okay, but it wasn't like the market was really waiting for it, but we did really believe in it. We, and we also saw that, you know, People started to use it for therapeutical uses and it, it, it got spread around the medical communities. and. You know, for, for that, it became an important thing, but it wasn't like selling like crazy because most smokers, they, they just uh, prefer high THC. We did believe in it and we introduced more strains, CBD Kush, uh, CBD Auto White Widow, Auto Compassion Line, well, a whole collection uh, which we have uh, uh, right now. Um, but uh, what made the big change was that right now, it was three years ago, uh, so now in 2020, 2017, we introduced Charlotte's Angel. Mm -hmm. And that is the first time we had a strain in which we achieved to 
read the THC almost completely out, leaving only CBD uh, left as, the, as, as like the only high cannabinoid in the in the plant. And the Charlotte's Angel averagely is around seven to twelve percent uh, CBD. But we've also seen an analysis of that plant of at even 15, 16, 17 percent. But the THC is always below uh, 0, 0.7, actually usually around uh, 0, 0.3, 0, 0.4. Yeah, nice. And this was a this was a game changer for sure. Like in the recent years, when we when we managed to 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 have this strain, Charlotte's Angel, which was virtually without THC. In the same time, nice looking, beautiful flowers with enough resin. So good to make extracts, good to smoke. Uh, you know, good good to use actually in any application you like. Uh, this this boomed and we sold shitloads of these seeds uh, uh, around Europe. In most countries, it's still illegal plant. So that's that's funny, you know. So in a legal circumstance, in an illegal circumstance, people still choose yeah. to grow this plant without any THC. The actual flower isn't illegal, but the plant is illegal. And it's, it's, it's crazy. But this was apparently what people did want. They they wanted seeds with, with only CBD. And, uh, you know, right now we are uh, uh, expanding that collection as well. So we introduced this year uh, uh, CBD Auto Blackberry Kush also. And also uh, CBD Auto Charlotte's Angel. So there's now an auto flowering version of the, of the Charlotte's Angel, the feminized one. And also the the blackberry kush cross in auto flowering version, which is doing well as well. All of them they are uh, below one uh, percent uh, for sure, and usually uh, below zero seven, and averagely around four in uh, THC. And there are some there that and can like, qualify for for technical hemp. Is that is that correct? Can you pick out some phenos that? Well, that really depends on what your country considers to be technical hemp. Oh, uh, yeah. You know? I, I think uh, I'm more talking Europe where it's 0 0.3, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah. In Europe, there's we have some kind of European uh, uh, rules. But then the member states are uh, always have their own interpretation of the rules and also some extra rules sometimes. Uh, the European framework says basically there are, uh, there's a collection of, let's say, 30 different strains which are all below 0 to uh, THC. On paper, in reality, they're not, but uh, on paper, they are. Um, and those are like registered cultivars for farmers in Europe. Uh, so that's like the European rules. But then each country has its own way. So in Holland, if you want to grow hemp, technical hemp, industrial hemp, you need to take one of those cultivars. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to register with the police, and they will come to, the, to your field to do tests. Like they will will check up on you, and if everything is uh, is uh, according to the to the rules, you know you can you can do your thing. But you need permission. In Italy, uh, which is not just a coincidental example, that's that's where we sell these seeds most. In Italy, it is legal to grow anything which in the field has a THC up up to zero six percent. I just wow. told you that these strains are below row seven. With other words, they fit in the Italian uh, legislation. And in Italy, they don't care if you use actually the seeds from the European list or you use other seeds. Just the uh, THC has to be lo be low enough. Like this, in, uh, in each country in Spain, it's more or less the same. So they don't really ask you 
which train you chose as long as you are below the, the limit. But in Spain, the limit isn't 0 0.6, the limit is 0 0.2. So, you know, you, you have a bit more limited uh, in that sense. Um, but, you know, if you, for example, if you don't flower them all the way until the end, you harvest a bit earlier, yeah, you have a lower THC also. In the United States, the, 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 the national uh, limit for hemp is 0 0.3. Uh, one tenth of a point higher than uh, than in Europe, but in the United States there's no official catalog of strains. So if you would pick any strain that is below zero three, it's okay. Um, so yeah, you know every every country is different, but there are some places where these strains can be grown. Uh, uh, Switzerland, Colombia, uh, Mexico all have a legislation in which everything under one percent THC is considered hemp. Uh -huh. So in those countries. You can quite easily uh, grow these strains as well. So they're often being grown under uh, juridical protection of uh, industrial hemp, but they're not being grown for their stems or for their seed for oil production. Production They are being grown for their cannabinoid content. Mm -hmm. Now, if you would fiber, there are, there are other strains with, uh, which are shitty for uh, to smoke, but great for fiber. But this strain is nice for the flower, for extracts, uh, uh, yeah, so it's being grown a lot for that. Very Interesting. Good. Yeah, okay. That's been a pleasure talking to you, mate. You've uh, you've enlightened us quite a lot on uh, on the history of your company, for starters. Yes. Um, the history of really what I see as the birth of a true cannabis industry. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Thank you for coming on board and, and having a chat with us. Yeah, thanks to you guys. It was nice to be here again. Yeah, always a pleasure, mate. And we look forward to our next chat. Cool. Take care, mate. Thank you. Bye. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Canter. Any guest views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guests and not necessarily those of the hosts. Cantor strongly suggests listeners research local, state, and federal laws and regulations before conducting any cannabis-related activity. 